Welcome to Voices in Health Law, the podcast of the American Bar Association Health Law section. I'm your host, Stephanie Dorville. I'm one of the newest hosts to the podcast, so I'm grateful for the opportunity. And my first guest, whom I'm interviewing, is Joe Metro from Reed Smith LLP, and is based in Washington, D.C. So um, I'd love for the audience to know a little bit more about you before we get into the questions. Sure thing. Hi, everyone. My name is Joe Metro. I call myself a commercial regulatory life sciences lawyer here in the D.C. office of Reed Smith. I've been working on drug and medical device industry issues since about 1990, uh, heavy focus on fraud and abuse and pricing related matters and, and of course, how they ultimately interact with commercial contracting, uh, you know, market access and field promotion. Great. And with that awesome background, this is why we reached out to you to give us a little bit more information about the Inflation Reduction Act. We're going to you know, pick your brain for a series of podcast episodes on this very important piece of legislation. And so with the first episode on this topic, I'd like to ask you, what are the drug pricing reforms in the Inflation Reduction Act? Sure, Stephanie, I agree completely. First of all, the IRA is really important. Inflation Reduction Act is very important. It, it's going to introduce a lot of moving parts and dynamics into drug pricing. And really, it includes four sets of reforms. Uh, the first is that there will now be inflation rebates, so-called inflation rebates for drugs covered under Medicare Part B beginning in 2023, and then Part D actually already beginning in the fourth quarter of 2022. Uh, the second reform is that we're going to have limits on insulin cost sharing under Medicare Parts B and D beginning this year, 2023. In 2024 and 2025, we're going to have some fundamental changes to the basic Medicare Part D benefit design and a new manufacturer rebate program under Medicare Part D, which will replace the old coverage gap rebate program. And then finally, the one that most people have sort of heard about in the news, probably uh, the first time federal price negotiation for so-called selected drugs uh, under Medicare Parts B and Part D beginning in 2026. Wow, those, those are really big pieces to try and attack through this law. So can you give us a little of an overview on the Medicare inflation rebates? Sure. So the, the Medicare inflation rebates are model, modeled on an existing Medicaid inflation rebate and a little bit of background on that. So under the Medicaid drug rebate program, manufacturers pay rebates to the Medicaid program, to CMS, in connection with coverage of their products under state Medicaid programs. One of the components for the rebate amount is the so-called CPI or inflation rebate. And essentially what it says is to the extent that a manufacturer's quarterly average manufacturer price or AMP as reported by the manufacturer increases faster than the rate of inflation from a base period once the product is launched, the manufacturer has to pay that difference dollar for dollar. So for example, if a product launched at an AMP of $100 during a base period, the rate of inflation was 6% up to the present, and the current AMP, quarterly AMP, was $110, the rebate would be an extra $4 to the Medicaid program. So under the, the new IRA provisions, that same concept has been applied both in the context of Medicare Part B and in the context of Medicare Part D. For Medicare Part B, as in boy, the amount of the rebate is the number of Part B rebatable units, which is essentially what does Medicare Part B pay for 
uh, excluding units paid for under the 340B drug discount program, multiplied by the difference between the, the benchmark quarter, which is uh, the third quarter of 2021, a Medicare Part B payment rate, which is 106% of ASP, uh, adjusted for inflation, and then you subtract the current uh, Medicare Part B payment amount, again, 106% of the current ASP to, to get your rebate amount. So, you know, again- And is ASP, uh, is ASP average sales price? I'm- ASP is average sales price, and it is essentially equal to the average, aggregate average net price for a product not taking into account discounts uh, generally to government programs. So for all the lawyers who tried to become attorneys without doing math, if you're in this world, you have to do some math. <laughs> you do have to do a little bit of math. You do have to do a little bit of math. And then on the Medicare Part D side, by the way, again, we have a similar kind of concept. It, rather than being calculated quarterly, this is a, an annualized rebate based on the federal fiscal year. And uh, the amount of this is going to be the Part D reimbursed units, again, excluding 340B purchased units uh, beginning in 2026. And then, so it's the number of units times the difference between a base period AMP from a January 21 through the third quarter of 21 period adjusted for inflation. And again, the what's called the annual manufacturer price, which is essentially a weighted uh, average quarterly AMP for the uh, current contract year. So again, it's... Uh, it's a fairly simple in concept. There's a lot of math and defined terms that uh, specify the time periods, but all in all, to the extent the prices increase faster than inflation, the manufacturer has to pay the difference as a rebate. And so will the rebates apply to all Part B and Part D drugs or will the be? No, the, the rebates generally apply to brand products. So for Part B, for example, uh, the inflation rebates will apply, will not apply, I'm sorry, to what are called multiple source drugs, drugs approved under what's called an abbreviated new drug application, which is how generic drugs get approved. They won't apply to what are called qualifying biosimilars. A biosimilar generally is kind of like a generic biologic product. Qualifying biosimilars are those sort of that are new biosimilars that are launched and that they keep their ASP below the brand biologic that they are sort of similar to. There are also some exceptions for low-cost drugs where the annual cost is less than $100 a year uh, for pneumococcal and Hep B vaccines, and then in situations where the secretary determines that there's a shortage or supply disruption of the product, uh, there can be exemptions there as well. Uh, in addition, as I mentioned earlier, rebates would not be payable on units purchased at 340B or units where the product is bundled into another, a, a larger payment rate, say like an inpatient hospital uh, PPS payment, ERG payment. For Part D, you have a similar set of exclusions. So generally it applies to brand drugs and biologics and biosimilars. There is an exception, however, for abbreviated new drug, again, generic uh, drugs, if those generic drugs are essentially sole source generics. So there is a way where the rebates can apply there. Again, you have an exception for low cost products and short supply situations as well. But by and large, these rebates will apply mostly to brand products. Yeah, the sort of the blockbuster drugs, the drugs that, you know, are making the most money, at least at the outset, but- um... Or at least they're perceived as higher price. So you could even have an older brand drug. And in fact, it may be, maybe the older brand drugs that are the ones that are likely to trigger the highest rebates because simply they've been around, the price increases have been, you know, uh, accumulating, if you will, over time. 
Yeah, so this is really to help our federal health care programs control their own costs outlays related to these drugs under Part B uh, and Part C. That's right. One thing that's sort of interesting about this whole mechanism is that it's really not money that's necessarily passing through to people uh, in, a, in a typical sense. It's usually just paying for other reforms uh, under the Medicare program that, you know, we'll be talking about uh, some of those over the course of these podcasts. Yeah. So in terms of the effect on payments to Part B and Part D providers, what would you say about that? So uh, under Part B, there really won't be any effect in terms of the amount of payment. So for example, if I'm a doctor that infuses a product, I'm still going to receive 106% of the ASP. The only thing that will change a little bit is part of the money that is associated with inflation rebates will be used to lower the patient's coinsurance percentage under Medicare Part B. So the patient will pay a little less federal government will pay a little more of that overall payment amount. One of the operational things that's going to be sort of interesting to watch is the potential for confusion as coinsurance percentages could actually change from quarter to quarter here and how that gets implemented, how it gets communicated to patients, et cetera. So patients benefit maybe modestly, providers not so much of a you know effect on them except to the extent that they you know, are using certain drugs. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's right. That's correct. Yes. Okay. So what are the biggest or the high level implications of these reforms? Well, as you might imagine, uh, you know, just sort of by the nature, what these inflation rebates are really trying to do, or they're trying to act as a disincentive or a break against superinflationary price increases. And you know, fundamentally, it's not clear uh, whether they'll be effective at doing that. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Medicaid program has had this kind of mechanism in place really since 1990, and it has not been particularly effective. Here, though, of course, you know, you're potentially adding in a much bigger base of utilization to which inflation rebates could be applied. And so the ability, for example, to, to subsidize those rebate liabilities through, say, increasing costs to prior or, or prices to private payers, there's going to be some of that tension and, you know, whether that's going to be doable or not, it will have to, we'll have to see. I, I do think though, you know, because of that whole dynamic of, you know, trying to potentially subsidize things, manufacturer rebate negotiations with health plans and PBMs are likely to, you know, get a little stickier uh, around rebate amounts. Oftentimes those agreements have so-called price protection limits where the rebates will increase if uh, the prices increase past a threshold. Uh, I would imagine those negotiations may get a little stickier and more difficult going forward, depending on how this plays out. I would also note, by the way, that because these rebates are triggered off of a base period original price, the CBO itself has also recognized and predicted that new products that are launched are likely to be launched at higher prices, simply to create a higher base period and potentially mitigate the potential for future uh, inflation rebates. Yeah, and I mean, I definitely do not envy the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO's job in this regard, trying to predict future base price levels and potential savings to the government. So That's, it. That's why we went to law school, right? <laughs> yes, less math, right? I thought. <laughs> So what are the open legal regulatory operational questions? 
Yeah, there, there are a number of things I think to watch for uh, as CMS sort of develops guidance around this program. First of all, there are a number of, of products that are not technically drugs, things like hyaluronic acid, skin substitutes, which are nevertheless paid for as if they are uh, mm -hmm. under Medicare Part B using ASP payment rates. One question that's open is, are these inflation rebates going to apply to those products? There are questions about the interaction of the new requirement that manufacturers pay refunds for discarded units of Part B injectable drugs. Not clear whether the rebate units will be adjusted by those refunded units that have been paid to the government. Uh, also not clear, and this is a very big one, whether Medicare Advantage units will be subject to these inflation rebates. And then you know, as I said, operationally, there's always going to be questions about how messy the data is, what processes are going to be put in place for CMS to sort of notify providers of what the coinsurance percentage is from quarter to quarter, and it's going to change from quarter to quarter and drug to drug. So, you know, there's going to be business challenges in physician offices, for example, around, you know, planning and cash collections, order, order to cash types of situations. Yeah, so fraud, waste, and abuse attorneys are probably looking at this very closely and looking at potential opportunities to figure out whether people are actually complying with the law in good faith or taking oh, advantage absolutely. of a very messy system. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Well, where there's messy, there's always uh, fraud, waste, and abuse issues to be concerned about. So are there, what are the sleeper issues? I mean, it's, that's where the fraud, waste, and abuse issues that usually come yeah, out of. I, I think there's actually a very big sleeper issue here, and it relates uh, to the 340B drug discount uh, program. And maybe for those who aren't necessarily familiar with that program, a little bit of background. The 340B program requires manufacturers to provide discounts to so-called covered entity safety net providers. So uh, disproportionate share hospitals, various clinics getting 340B, or I'm sorry, HRSA uh, program grants. There's been a lot of policy and other litigation going on relating to- All the way up to the Supreme Court. All the way up to the Supreme <laughs> Court and also, you know, in three federal court appeals courts right now relating to contract pharmacies uh, relationships with covered entities. And as I mentioned earlier, in the calculation of these rebates and the, and the rebate liabilities, the units subject to the rebate are supposed to exclude units that have been purchased at 340B discounts. Mm -hmm. Again, for Part B beginning in 2023 and for Part D in 2026. The idea here is because the 340B discounts already have an inflation component to them, uh, the manufacturers shouldn't be subjected to sort of a duplicate uh, payment on that front. So. You know, implicit in that idea of excluding these units from the rebate calculations is the assumption, of course, that you can actually do so, that there is a way to identify them. And as it happens right now, under the Medicare Part B program, there is a mechanism, and CMS has issued guidance to providers and saying, in, in the MAX, saying in 2024, you know, everybody's going to have to do this by uh, indicating on a, on a 340B claim adding a, a, a modifier, the JW or JZ or T, I'm sorry, the JG or TB modifiers to indicate uh, that the product was a 340B claim. On the Part D side though, where claims are typically processed at the pharmacy, there is no mechanism for, uh, for, for identifying 340B claims yet. The NCPDP, the National Council for Prescription Drug Programs has a claims processing standard to do this, but it has not been implemented by many plans. 
where it has been tried. It's been messy and have, there's been a lot of pushback from providers. But right now we have no mechanism that's been mandated to identify 340B claims under Part D. So we've already highlighted how important this is gonna be for 340B providers and contract pharmacies. We've talked about Part B and Part D providers that are you know, um, administering these drugs. Who else should be paying attention to these? So yeah, everybody, you know, the, all of the stakeholders associated with the 340B program uh, should really watch this issue on a couple of levels. First of all, obviously, as you said, for the 340B pro providers and the contract pharmacies, first, there's work. You have to be able to identify these, these claims uh, in the claims processing system in, in all likelihood. Second, uh, there's the potential that, you know, if Medicare is going to do it, other payers are going to do it. And, you know, the question is going to become, okay, are we going to implement this as sort of a least common denominator process across all payers? Or are we going to have different claims processing uh, steps for Medicare claims and non-Medicare claims? The other thing, and this has certainly been a huge concern on the part of providers, is once these claims are identified, does this open the door to third-party payers trying to negotiate lower reimbursement amounts for those units, given that they've been purchased at a lower price, which can be a, a fairly significant discount? And then finally, there have been a few state laws, like Arkansas, for example, that actually restricts plans' ability to use 340B uh, limits or, or cut payment rates for 340B, and you may end up having, you know, some limited preemption issues popping up uh, in that context. So that's the, that's the provider side. For manufacturers, obviously, this is a big deal because it, it has the potential to provide financial relief from duplicate discounts. But, you know, again, there's another potential benefit here, which is if manufacturers can identify 340B units, or if there's a mechanism for doing that, manufacturers may be able to dispute rebate claims from commercial uh, payers uh, based on the fact that they're uh, excluded utilization if the contract excludes 340B units from the units subject to commercial uh, or private pay, pay rebates. So, you know, again, you're important right now to be thinking about contract dispute provisions, limits on 340B disputes, what units are in, what units are out of, of various rebate contracts. And then finally, for payers, you know, again, it's probably both opportunity and threat. Opportunity, on the one hand, in, in the sense that the identification of these units could, you know, have the potential to lead to payment rate reductions and savings to plans. Threat, on the other hand, in the sense that it could be limiting the rebates that, again, manufacturers might be willing to pay in the case of 340B uh, units. So this is one where, you know, not a, not a lot of focus on this, I think, from this simple little exclusion of these units, but could really lead to uh, some important implications for how that 340B um, program affects stakeholders really across the spectrum in the healthcare system. Well, I certainly learned a lot in this first part of this series that will be on the Inflation Reduction Act reforms. Um, thank you so much, Joe. I look forward to talking with you again and providing your expertise. And hopefully this is educational. I think it was very educational for all of the listeners as well. And we look forward to talking to Joe and hearing from others on a future episode of Voices in Health Law. My pleasure, Stephanie. Thanks very much for the talk and uh, looking forward to the next. Now a word from our sponsors. The Health Law section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and BMG Health, 
and three-star premier sponsors, Pinnacle Health.